0: Intercede for me. Today we are celebrating one of the oldest feasts in the church. It goes back to at least the 4th century, decades before St. Patrick arrived here in Ireland. We find it talked about in a very famous diary of a woman called Echiria, who was a probably a Spanish noblewoman who travelled to the Holy Land in the thir- 380s. And she kept a very detailed account of her pilgrimage. And she described how in Jerusalem, when she was there, she saw this feast, the very same feast, the presentation, being celebrated in Jerusalem 40 days after the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Let's go back in our imaginations then, during this time of prayer, even further, back to the very day itself. Let's picture Our Lady and St. Joseph, who have been staying in Bethlehem for the 40 days following the birth of Jesus. Of course, we can imagine how keen they are, as devout Jews, to fill the prescriptions of the Old Testament, the purification of the mother, and the buying back of the firstborn male, who, by law, belongs to God. Of course, the lady needed no purification, but in her great humility she goes through with this. After the 40 days have elapsed, the Holy Family make the five-mile journey to Jerusalem, to the north of Bethlehem. Picture the scene then. Busy Jerusalem, crowds milling around through the streets. No doubt other mothers bringing their children, their sons, who were born on the same day as Jesus, maybe several ladies. And they traversed the narrow streets of Jerusalem, streets that Jesus himself was to walk many years later, many times in his, during his public life of preaching. Jesus would work miracles on these very streets. The Holy Family then come to the majestic building, the temple, one of the most majestic buildings in the entire world, immense, clad in white stone lined in places with gold, those majestic veils before the Holy of Holies. The veils alone were the size of tennis courts, of of thick fabric. So it's really splendid. Remember even the the apostles later on with Jesus marvel at the great blocks in the walls. And despite this building being so marvelous, so splendid, so holy, the you could say the epicenter of holiness in the, in, in the entire world, this temple, in, in a certain way, is only a pale symbol of Our Lady herself. Because it is in and through Our Lady, rather than the temple, that God makes himself present to the world. Certainly there is a presence of 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 God at the at the temple. There's a divine overshadowing, what the Jews call the Shekinah. That certainly overshadows the temple in Jerusalem. But there's a much greater Shekinah or overdwelling over Our Lady. And this temple around her, which people are their jaws are dropping as they look at this incredible building, and it pales into insignificance beside this humble young mother carrying her child, accompanied by her husband, Our Lady. St. John Eudes, he writes about this. He says, what then is the true temple? It is the holy heart of the Most Blessed Virgin. The Church says of her person that Mary is the temple of the Lord, the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit and we can apply these words with still better reason to her admirable heart. Uh, the almost like the Holy of Holies is in the centre of the temple, while the heart of a lady is the Holy of Holies, the real, the real temple, and the one place on earth where God is perfectly adored. So they arrive, this trio, at the splendid temple complex, our lady with the child in her arms, Joseph at her side, always watchful, taking care of her and the child, dedicating every every moment of his of his day to taking care of the child and the child's mother. Anyway, as they come to this temple complex, the first thing they do is climb a broad stairway and entered through what was known as the Huldah Gate, into the vast court of the Gentiles. And there, there's people from all around the Mediterranean world, including non-Jews milling around, and hence the name, the Court of the Gentiles. Those non-Jews there, perhaps, well, perhaps just, many of them just good old-fashioned tourists. um, And they're just, well, looking around and taking it all in and taking notes maybe. And they're carrying the infant child with them and they come to a stone wall on which is written a solemn warning in both Greek and Latin, forbidding all Gentiles from passing any further under pain of death. It's quite quite a warning where nowadays we'd see, you know, Trespassing here, you'll be a 50 euro fine or something. What here, going any further, the fine is death, and they obviously mean it quite quite forbidding, really. Also quite exclusive in a certain sense. You can imagine Our Lady seeing that and a certain pang that that all those Gentiles are so excluded and must feel so excluded coming from that. They're so excluded from the holy of holies. And, of course, this exclusion is coming to an end. God is is about to open up the temple to the whole world, the temple which is Christ himself. They pass through a narrow gate and climb 14 steps up to what is called the beautiful gate. Moving through this gate, they find themselves in the court of the women, and here Our Lady places money in one of these offering chests, donations. And of course, it's the price of a pair of turtle turtledoves or two young pigeons. It shows the poverty of the, the holy family. That's their offering because they can't really afford much else. The poor man's offering. And it's for the purification ceremony. And again, Our Lady goes further, climbing another 15 steps up to what was then the majestic Nicanor gate. There she stands at the threshold of this gate, and she is allowed to go no further. Exclusion again. She who is the true temple of God. And, and she, she submits to this in all her humility. Fine, she can go no further. She who is honoring the temple by her presence, in fact. But from here, she can see into the court of the priests and into the temple itself. Then one of the officiating officiating priests comes out to her, sprinkling sprinkling her with sacrificial blood, blood of a, a sacrificed animal, and declaring her to be cleansed. And now she can offer her infant child, pay the ransom price to receive the child back again. And as she's in the process of doing this, she is suddenly interrupted. Uh, An old man comes, kind of out of nowhere. We'd imagine him uh, Simeon, acting under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Probably also, like Our Lady, a very humble individual. Some point that's made that all those who Especially in the, the nativity of our Lord, all those who can come close to to Jesus, recognizing Him, are always the humble people. Right? You would say the little people. They're the ones who are kind of privileged to to get close to our Lord. We think especially of the shepherds, for example, in Bethlehem. So this humble man, an elderly man, comes up prompted by the Holy Spirit, coming to the temple, and. And when the child Jesus is brought in for him, for the, the law to be fulfilled, Simeon gently takes the infant from her lady. We're told in the gospel, he took him into his arms and blessed God. And he said, now, master, you can let your servant go in peace, just as you promised because my eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared for all the nations to see. The famous nunctimitis nunctomitis now you can let me go. Now you can dismiss me. This which has become a synonym now for I've just reached the the perfect point. Now I can die. Nunctimitis. And that is what he's saying, of course. Now I can die a happy man. We can imagine that Simeon soon soon afterwards, must have have died. And he's splendid things then to say about this child. And you can imagine the delight for a lady in St. Joseph to hear these things. That this child is a, a light to enlighten the pagans. Those Gentiles, all those who are excluded under pain of death from coming up even this far in the temple. The glory of your people Israel. As the Child's father stood there wondering at the things that were being said about him. So it's a delight and also a wonder to hear these things. And of course that Simeon, they've never met him before, and this man is, has been inspired precisely to know who this child is. However, things take a, a turn, a sad turn, when Simeon then turns to our lady, looking at her, no doubt intensely, sadly, knowing the sorrow that what he was about to say would cause him or cause her and would cause Saint Joseph. And yet he says it, it has to be said. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, you see this child, he is destined for the fall and for the rising of many in Israel. Destined to be a sign that is rejected, and a sword will pierce your own soul too, so that the secret thoughts of many may be laid bare. So we can imagine hearing those words for a lady, a very hard thing, to to hear that a sword of some kind is going to pierce her soul, and and of course her lady knew when she heard that this was a prophecy of the suffering of her son. She must have. Because the one thing guaranteed to pierce the soul of Our Lady would be the suffering of Jesus. In a certain way, like any mother, uh, that would be the thing that would most pierce their heart, would be the suffering of their child. And this this is the suffering of Our Lady. It's a violent image also. So a sword will pierce your own soul too. And she knows, she knows clearly that sword, what that sword will be. The malice, the malice that is in the world, which Jesus himself speaks about later in one of his parables. The tenants say, said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. The sheer malice of that, the, capacity of us human beings for really, really malicious activity, really malicious actions. It should almost frighten us, I think. And it's frightening for a lady who, of course, is immaculate, not a shadow of a sin or a sinful tendency in her in her heart. And then just to hear suddenly spoken at kind of in clear words, just the the, the fact that this malice is, is certainly around, it's not far away, and it will affect her very profoundly, and it will affect, of course, her son very profoundly. These are, these are the actions that lead, of course, to the death of Christ, and all malicious actions, in one way or another, are, are causing the death of Christ. Both Matthew and Mark report an event that follows immediately on the death of Christ. And Jesus, as they say, when our Lord has been crucified, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Strange, strange event. And in a sense, it's It's almost like the cleaving of the heart of Our Lady in two. This veil, this enormous veil we we mentioned a moment moment ago that that Our Lady and St. Joseph must have glimpsed this tennis court-sized veil, enormous, spectacular veil of the temple. And both Matthew and Mark tell us that this veil, the moment that Our Lord breathes out His life, that veil is is torn in half, from top to bottom. And it is, a, it, is a, it is an amazing image also of the grief of Our Lady, a sorrow we cannot imagine. Her grief, not just the natural grief of a mother watching the terrible death of her son, but a grief of Our Lady witnessing what it means for us men and women, who are to be her children, what it means for us to reject God, to prefer, in some way, that God would be dead, that God would would not exist, that God would be absent from our lives, which is, in in a way, it it is the deepest evil possible, wanting God to be gone, wanting the death of God. And that is, of course, the crucifixion. And that is what leads, or more than anything else, I I presume, what leads for the the piercing of Our Lady's soul. And yet in all this, and, and in even hearing these words spoken by Simeon, which must have caused her anguish already, Our Lady, in that moment, but Our Lady never runs away from the cross, neither here in the temple nor on Calvary. She embraces the cross. She embraces the hard things of her life. And she is very aware that there is both the delight, the delight of being the mother of Jesus, the delight of hearing those things said about Him, the light, the light of the Gentiles, uh, the glory of Israel, that Simeon had said. But there's also the cross. It's not just the, the nice parts. And Our Lady is open to embracing the cross. We see that here already with Simeon. We think of ourselves. We think of the aspects of our faith that are really delightful. Beautiful Mass with sacred music. Feasts, like today's feasts. Um, These are kind of moments of corresponding to the transfiguration of our Lord. When, remember, Peter said on behalf of the others, Lord, it is good to be here. This is beautiful. In other words, you had a beautiful witnessing the transfiguration and being here with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. What could be better? And then, of course, then he wants to stay there forever, build these three tents and just camp out there on, on Mount Tabor for the, for the rest of his life. But these transfiguration moments, while they they're there and we need them and they're wonderful. God, God does not want this, does not want to deceive us. There are also hard moments. And, and people, you and I, of course, we're very tempted to run away from these hard moments. We're tempted to be like those that Jesus speaks about in another parable of the, the seed sown by the sower. We're like the seeds that are sown on rocky ground. And initially we, we receive the word with joy. Transfiguration moment. This is wonderful. This is so enjoyable. But, Jesus says, they have no root. They believe for a, for a while. But in the time of testing, they fall away. In the time of hearing the bad news, as, as in a way Our Lady does now, Here's this the hard part from Simeon, at the time of the cross itself, they fall away, petrified, petrified by the prospect of having to pick up this cross and carry it. And so they, 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 they run, they run a mile. And, and you and I were very much tempted. <clears throat> I want to avoid this cross. <clears throat> I don't want to carry this cross. Another an example of fortitude, they're not running away from the cross, but at the same time being kind of tempted to run away from the cross in the life of St. Thomas More, which I like. It comes up in the film, A Man for All Seasons. So St. Thomas More was at the pinnacle of his, th- his career, the most successful moment when he was knighted in 1521 and became treasurer of the Exchequer. Uh, just the year before, he'd built a lovely house in Chelsea, by the river, by the Thames, the house known as Beaufort House. And it was quite a bad Two courtyards laid out between the house and the river, and in the north of the, the land, there, was, uh, there were acres of gardens and orchards. So it really was a, a lovely house by the River Thames. But ten years later, or 12 years after the building of the house, Moore had to resign his office, given King Henry VIII's uh, pretensions to be the head of the church, and uh, and his divorce, and all these things leading to the Reformation in England. And he hoped, he hoped that he could live out a quiet life after that, amongst his family and his books. I'm uh, maybe not heartbroken to have to give up the, his office if he could then live out his days in this kind of idyllic life of, of the books and the family and the garden and the, the orchards, early retirement in the garden of Beaufort House. And he, he had that for a little while, a brief period of peace. But uh, he, he, he was to find out that his silence was not acceptable to King Henry VIII, and, uh, and his silence was saying too much. It was clearly very clear that he disapproved of the king's marriage. And so they hound him. And they drag him, of course, to the Tower of London. He's persecuted, ultimately put to death. The quiet life is over. And there is this line, certainly in the, in the, in the film, A Man for All Seasons, where, where his life has become tremendously complicated full of suffering. This is one thing after another, as the, the king and the king's men hector him and, and, and try to trap him. And at one moment he exclaims, "Oh, for the quiet life, over oh, the quiet life, wouldn't it be lovely to be in his garden, in the orchards, reading his book, enjoying his children and his grandchildren. And this was denied to him. The quiet life never happened. Um, but it's, it's almost like a, an ironic over-the-quiet life. He could have had it, of course, very easily if he'd given in and if he'd run away from the cross and said, well, under these circumstances, I, have to, uh, I just have to accept the king's will and, and accede to his adulterous matrimony, etc., etc. But he doesn't, even though in his heart of hearts he, he, would, he would greatly love that quiet life. It's not to be his. His beautiful fortitude, the beautiful fortitude, which with with which Thomas More goes to his execution, and hence we have Saint Thomas More. Well, you and I, we are asked also to, to have this fortitude, the fortitude of Thomas More, perhaps at times, the fortitude of a lady, hearing those words said by Simeon, and while, of course, not. Not uh, delighted at the prospect, of course, we would all say, oh, for the quiet life. And Our Lady, I'm sure, would have said, oh, for the quiet life. Wouldn't it be lovely to stay in, in Nazareth with, her, with Jesus and with, with Joseph and, and suffer nothing? Just have a lovely kind of transfiguration-like life. But it's not to happen. Saint Josemaria, in his book, The Furrow, he says, he says this, The Lord needs strong and courageous souls who refuse to come to terms with mediocrity and enter all kinds of environments with a sure step. The Lord needs them. The Lord needs people like Thomas More who is able to shuffle off that temptation of mediocrity, the mediocrity of the quiet life, of... Of a life without the just the, the the turmoil and the trauma of of the court case and and uh, the persecution that he was he was put under. <clears throat> but he was a strong, certainly a strong and courageous soul. And he refused that, uh, refusing to come to terms with mediocrity. But that is not just stuff of, of martyrs, that has to be the stuff of you. And me. And our Lord needs us to be strong and courageous. Strong and courageous in defending our faith, standing up for what we believe, uh, at a, I don't know, at a, at a social gathering when it's, well, we feel it's kind of breezy and uh, and we feel kind of people are giving us the evil eye because of our beliefs and so on. And yet, strong and courageous, our Lord needs us the mediocre life of hiding from the world enclosing ourselves in a kind of safe space an enclosed garden with its orchards where metaphorically speaking we can prune the rose bushes rather than being out there facing the world with with all its dangers and, and and difficulties well let's finish up asking our lady also saint joseph for living these days, the the seven Sundays of St. Joseph, preparing us for the upcoming feast of St. Joseph. So it's good also to think of him and think he also is one of these strong and courageous souls. Without that, he would have not been much use. He had to be a strong and courageous soul to look after a lady, to look after Jesus, the way he did. So we ask them both to give us the grace to be like them both, ourselves to be strong and courageous and to delight in the moment of, uh, of the transfiguration, as it were, those delightful things that we see in today's feast, the presentation, but also to accept courageously and joyfully as well the less pleasant part, the, the prophecy that they hear of their own suffering through the suffering of Christ. I give you thanks, my God for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you for help to put them into effect. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.